This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee. Thanks for joining us today. We're going to be talking with Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's a fellow emergency critical care veterinary specialist at the Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center in Levittown on fever in dogs and cats. We'll be right back after these messages. Hi, Dr. Justine Lee. Do you know what I love? My cat, Lola. What I love about her is whenever I take a nap or go to sleep, she always wants to snuggle right up against me. You know what I don't love? Cleaning up after Lola's litter box, which is why Arm & Hammer created new cloud control litter. There's no clouds of nasties when I scoop. It's 100% dust-free, free of heavy perfumes, and helps reduce airborne dander from scooping. So what happens in the litter box stays in the litter box. New cloud control cat litter by Arm & Hammer. More power to you. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm really excited to have fellow colleague, Dr. Garrett Pachtinger. He's an emergency critical care veterinary specialist just like me, and really important that we be aware of what causes fever in our dogs and cats. Dr. Pachtinger is a criticalist at the Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center in Levittown, Pennsylvania. Dr. Pachtinger, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Oftentimes in the ER or ICU, we'll see dogs and cats that come in with a fever. First of all, do you mind just telling me what normal body temperatures for a dog and cat and how do we actually know if our dog or cat has a fever? That's actually a great and excellent first question because we have clients that call us all the time. I'm worried that my dog feels warm. What does that mean? What is normal and what should we do about it? So as you asked, In general, I tell clients a normal temperature for a dog or cat is approximately 100 to 102.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And most commonly, we take that as a rectal temperature because as many times as we try, we know they won't say on stick out their tongue. So rectal temperature it is. We can take temperatures other ways, for example, under the armpit or between sort of the thigh and groin area. That may be one or two degrees lower than normal. But again, 100 to 102.5 degrees Fahrenheit rectally is about average for both a dog and a cat. And I think the other question that we need to ask is, if it is elevated, is it truly a fever? If we take a step back and break down an elevation in body temperature, because really all that thermometer is doing when you stick it up the rear end is telling you what the number is. If it is higher than normal an elevation in that body temperature, that is not, the thermometer is not telling you that dog has a fever. All it is doing is reporting a number. Now it is on you, often the pet parent or the veterinary or veterinary team member to decide, is that elevation significant? So in breaking it down, that elevation can be from one of two common things. The first thing is what's called hyperthermia. Hyperthermia 
is an elevation in the body temperature, an elevated rectal temperature, and that's associated with increased heat production, increased ambient temperature, and then we can't or have not yet dissipated heat. For example, in plain English, if it's a 95 degree day out with high humidity and I go for a 5K run around the, the block you know, for the next hour, when I come back, I bet you my body temperature will be higher than normal. I've not had time to cool down, to sweat away that temperature. Dogs, even more than cats, for example, they pant away their heat. So if a dog is running around the dog park on an August sunny hot day and you bring them right to the veterinarian because you're worried they're limping. Well, if they went running around for half an hour and you bring them right to the veterinarian and they take the temperature and remembering that 100 to 102.5 is normal. If that limping dog is now 103.2, am I as the veterinarian suddenly going to say, well, now we need to do a whole workup for fever? No, again, it's my job to decide why are we elevated in the temperature factor? Is it because we just went running around or is it because there's something else going on? What clues or cues can help me? The history, as we just talked about, hot day, humid day, dog running around the park, the dog is bouncing off the walls, is happy, is barking, is licking your face, is jumping all over you as you try to do the examination. I can say to myself, you know what? That's probably an increased heat production, increased temperature outside or ambient temperature. And maybe we let the dog calm down or repeat the temperature in 30 or 60 minutes. Many times, once the dog calms down, we're in an air-conditioned environment, that will go down. Let's take another case. What if that dog comes in and they're lethargic? They're tired. They're laying down. They are not jumping around. They're not as responsive as they normally are. And you take that dog's temperature and it's 103.2. Now that little light bulb goes off in my head and I'm saying to myself, hmm, I don't know. It doesn't really seem like the dog's producing a lot of heat. The dog wasn't running around the dog park before coming in. It was inside and owners were concerned that the dog was not interactive as much. So probably not ambient temperature, right? So not heat production, not ambient temperature. We're in the hospital. We're lethargic, weak, lying down, and now we're 103.2. Now I'm saying to myself, that does not sound like hyperthermia. That truly sounds like fever. And a fever, by most definitions, is the body's way to fight off infection or disease or inflammation. So the body actually changes the normal body temperature that it had and makes it higher to go ahead and try to treat disease, try to fight off infection. If you want a little bit of physiology, not too much, what you'll read is that it's a true fever is caused by an increased thermoregulatory set point. In plain English, what that means is part of the brain, which is very responsible for thermoregulation, for controlling heat, changes the set point. It'd be like if you went into your house and you changed your thermostat and made the temperature higher on your thermostat. That's what the brain has done. The brain has changed the thermostat for the body, made the temperature be higher than normal. And once the infection is gone, once the inflammation or disease is gone, the brain will then turn the thermostat back down to a normal body temperature.
Thank you. So how do we actually work up a dog or a cat that may be coming in with a fever in terms of ruling out diseases? That's a great question. And like I've talked about in previous podcasts with you, Justine, one of the first tests that I consider is my physical examination. Not that it's a zero dollar test because your veterinarian likely does have an examination fee, which is well deserved. But that helps me decide, as you're asking, what other tests would I consider? So a physical examination here should be really thorough and systematic to try to determine, is there anything on the body with my hands, with my eyes, with my stethoscope that are abnormal and prompts me to say, do I need to run other tests? Here are some examples. If I look in the mouth and the mouth is terribly diseased, there is significant dental disease, there's ulcers on the tongue or the back of the mouth. Could that be a source of inflammation or infection? Does the patient come in limping and when you feel the joints, the joints are fluid filled and or painful? When I look at the body, is there evidence of bruising, redness, bleeding all over the body? When I feel the lymph nodes, are the lymph nodes bigger or painful? When I feel the belly, do any of the organs feel abnormal? So we take our examination and decide, is there anything specific or concerning that I can see alone on my examination to say that's an abnormality. For example, I talked about the lymph nodes being big. Why are the lymph nodes big? Could it be infection? Could it be cancer? All things that can cause fever in the body. So we use our examination first to decide, is there any obvious disease or illness that I can feel, see, or touch to then decide other tests what are needed to help determine. Now, if I consider other tests, we need to have a systematic approach. For example, you don't go to step four before going to step one. If your examination tells you there's something specific or concerning to target, that may be something to go after. But if there's not, we have to think about common things that cause fever. Many of us were taught in veterinary school if you hear hoofbeats, what do you think of when you hear hoofbeats? You think of horses, not zebras. So we don't think for the uncommon thing, the uncommon zebra first, and run expensive, specific, down-the-line step four tests. We think of the first-line tests. Justine and I, in a previous podcast, talked about the importance of routine blood work. And that is often where we start first, our complete blood count and biochemistry panel. Our complete blood counter, otherwise known as CBC, looks at our cell counts, our red blood cells, our white blood cells, the clotting portion of our clotting system called the platelets, and helps determine is there any presence of elevation, disease, abnormality that would prompt me to test further. The biochemistry panel looks at organ assessment, our kidney or liver function, electrolytes, protein levels. As an example, if I had a patient that came in with fever and a high kidney panel, I'm saying to myself, hmm, what are common causes of fever, common causes of infection? Could there be a urinary tract infection? Could there be a kidney infection? So we start with normal tests first, our CBC and our biochemistry panel. I would also, as I just mentioned the kidneys, think about getting a urine sample because we do know that urine abnormalities, a urinary tract infection, is certainly a good place for a fever to be hiding that I technically can't see from the outside of the body. Maybe the history helped. 
Maybe the client came in and said, there's blood in the urine, or they're peeing more frequently, or they're having urinary accidents in the house. Again, why your exam and your history should be and are so important for the veterinarian, because I would love to have a simple, quick test with an answer rather than a long, drawn out and more financially concerning process with more and more tests. So we'll start out with our CBC, our biochemistry panel, and a good urine assessment. But then we go into our second line of testing if there is no primary cause of disease or illness that we can find. Other tests we would consider include our clotting system, our coagulation testing, looking to see if there's evidence of disease in the body which would make a patient bleed more readily. We can check for infectious disease titers. In a previous podcast, Justine and I talked about feline leukemia, feline AIDS, FELV and FIV. What about Lyme disease, heartworm disease, or other tick-borne diseases like Ehrlichia or anaplasma? If the patient is having stool abnormalities, diarrhea, for example, consider fecal testing, fecal parasitology, and even microbiology. So we want to see, are there abnormalities like parasites, blood, or abnormal bacteria in the feces? X-rays. X-rays can be really important. We talk about a patient that comes in with breathing difficulty. What if there's pneumonia, for example? So X-rays of the heart and lungs, X-rays of the belly can help identify inflammation, infection, cancer, or other processes. And the final one I'll talk about for now is a belly ultrasound, otherwise known as an abdominal ultrasound. One of the best ways in a cost-effective way as compared to other more expensive testing to look on the inside of the body without actually being there on the inside of the body surgically. So we can look at all of the abdominal organs, for example, spleen, liver, kidneys, or other hormonal glands like your adrenal glands to see is there evidence of fluid that should not be there, masses or tumors, infection or inflammation of organs like in a male dog, your prostate or a pancreas in either male or female patients. So a great way to look on the inside of the body without actually having to be there. Remembering though, yes, a lot of tests were just mentioned, but we start with a systematic approach starting with step one and moving further steps only as needed. The nephrologist, Dr. Jody Lulich at University of Minnesota Veterinary Medical Center always says with urine tests, you have to grow it to know it. And for dog and cat owners, please make sure before you bring your dog or your cat into the ER vet or your general vet, one little tip is please don't let your dog or cat urinate several hours before they come in. Because oftentimes we need to do a sterile procedure called a cystocentesis to get a sterile urine sample for culture to find out if your dog has a urinary tract infection or your cat has any kind of crystals or bacteria in their urine. So my easy little hint is, again, try to prevent your dog from urinating. Don't walk them for a long time before. Don't let them pee in the outside of the hospital. And again, potentially take the litter box away from your cat just a few hours before they visit the vet. Because one of the top causes of fever that I see in especially cats can be an underlying urinary tract infection that actually spread up to the kidneys, resulting in what we call a pyelonephritis or kidney infection. So again, really important, 
Dr. Garrett Pachtinger had talked about some blood work changes we do in the ER and the urine culture test is really important in dogs or cats that may have a fever. We'll continue with this really important topic right after these messages from our sponsors. As a veterinarian, I hate bathing my dog, but I also can't stand having a stinky dog either. Well, have you heard of Pets Are Kids too? We've mentioned their best-selling premium pet dental spray on this program before, but they also have things like an all-natural pet oatmeal shampoo that smells amazing, an anti-itch spray, an ear cleaner, and even pet calming treats. What's really cool about Pets Are Kids too is that they donate a portion of their sales to pets with cancer. Their goal is to help save 100 pets with cancer by 2020. Check out their website at PetsRKids2.com and enter code PET15 for 15% off your order and a lifetime money-back guarantee. If you buy a product and email them a picture of your pet with a bottle, there's an email address on the back of all the bottles, they'll reply with a picture of the pet they donated to from your sale. Check them out again at PetsRKids2.com and don't forget code PET15 for 15% off. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, we're talking about the importance of diagnosing your dog or cat with a fever and how we actually work it up and how we treat it in the ER vet. Dr. Pachtinger, what other important information do you want to leave with our cat and dog owners when it comes to fever in the ER? I think one of the most important things that I want to discuss is treatment of the fever patient because it does differ significantly from a fever that you and I may have. If you and I have a fever, we may take a Tylenol or an ibuprofen, an Advil, or some other type of medication to help drive our fever down. Whereas in pets, for a variety of reasons, that is really a poor choice, a poor treatment. One of the things I talk about is that unfortunately for us in some ways, pets are exquisitely sensitive to some of the medications that you and I may take. For cats, even a fraction of a dose of a Tylenol, acetaminophen, may be deadly to them. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, for example, an Advil or an ibuprofen, can also cause severe illness, kidney failure, or liver failure. So for our cat and dog or small animal patients, treatment really depends on what is causing the disease itself, what is causing the fever itself. My hope is, with a good examination and a normal number of tests that we perform, we can get to the underlying cause and decide what the best course of treatment is. It may be an antibiotic, it may be an opioid, or it may be another pain medication or other type of medication for that pet. But we don't just prescribe anti-inflammatories like acetaminophen or ibuprofen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories to treat them. The other common question that we face and really dilemma that we face is, what happens when we can't get to a diagnosis? You know, plain and simple, we can't test for all viruses. We mentioned a couple of viruses earlier, especially in cats, our feline leukemia virus, FELV, or our feline immunodeficiency virus, FIV. But there are other viruses certainly which exist, and we can't exhaustively test 
for everything out there. So what do we do when no diagnosis is made, when we've run the routine number of tests or the number of tests which are available to us and we just don't know what the cause is? We do then consider often a therapeutic trial of medications, but we do this with a careful consideration of the risks and benefits. For example, we may not always want to use an antibiotic. We may not always want to use a steroid. So what would I consider? Well, you know, it depends. Number one, am I going to treat that patient on the inpatient or outpatient basis? If they have a fever that is high enough to cause malaise, lethargy, loss of appetite, dehydration, maybe that does require hospitalization and supportive care. If the temperature is greater than 105 or 106 degrees Fahrenheit, that can cause other abnormalities, electrolyte disturbances, organ damage, clotting system damage, and even death. And so, again, those are patients which I may want to treat on the inpatient basis, meaning we admit them to the hospital, we put a catheter in, we start giving them intravenous fluids to help hydrate them, to help bring down that temperature. In other causes of fever, we, again, may put them on antibiotics. So if they have a risk for infection, antibiotics would be a reasonable choice. But it does depend on what type of infection we're worried about. A urinary tract infection is going to be treated a little bit differently than pneumonia, which may be treated a little bit differently than other tick-borne diseases, for example, Lyme disease or ehrlichia or anaplasma. So antibiotics will depend on the veterinarian and your clinical suspicion about what may be causing it. Because we don't want to just give every medication out there. There are number one, side effects, number two, interactions, and number three, Antibiotics are not without risks. They can cause disease. They can cause loss of appetite. They can cause vomiting. So it's very important that we just don't prescribe medications because. And that may be something that we have to discuss with the client. Why are we or why are we not prescribing medication X, Y, or Z? And again, why it is important to not just go into your medicine cabinet and give your pet, give your dog, give your cat what you would take for a fever, even if it is a fraction of the dose because you weigh more than they do, for example. So that can cause significant disease, can cause significant illness. As the toxicologist in me will often attest to, we see a lot of accidental poisonings when pet owners are trying to do good and they give, you know, a small pill like an Aleve or a Tylenol or an Advil. And please never give any human medications without talking to your veterinarian or the ASPC Animal Poison Control Center because it can be really poisonous. So really important. Don't give any medication. Don't use any of your old cat's expired medications without consulting a vet. It is really important that we diagnose it and treat it right away. Dr. Pachtinger, any last thoughts to leave us with when it comes to fever? The one thing I'll leave you with is the concept of what's called fever of unknown origin. And a fever of unknown origin, as it sounds, is a fever that we see that we cannot determine the underlying cause of. In people, it typically has a little bit of a different connotation. For example, in people, they talk about a disease that lasts several weeks with a high temperature. Often, we want to get to the bottom of things a little bit quicker, faster, and for quality of life in our pets, empirically meaning we prescribe medications sooner for them because we don't want to see them sick as long because we don't have the same number of tests and or health insurance for many of them. So we want to make sure we don't get into the fever of unknown origin. But I would encourage you not to get frustrated in the process because there are so many different causes of fever, bacterial, viral, rickettsial, fungal, protozoal, parasitic, 
immune-mediated, inflammatory, cancerous, and there even are miscellaneous causes. For example, drug reactions, certain breeds such as the Sharpay, certain toxins. Recognizing there are so many causes for fever. Recognize that your veterinarian, while they want to get down to the bottom of this, will do so in a systematic approach, working with you to do that. And when the point comes that treatment is needed, I guarantee they will prescribe what they feel is in the best interest for your pet. Thank you. So important. Again, this is a really common problem that we see dogs and cats coming into the emergency room for. You're right. If your dog or your cat feels really warm to the touch, I always recommend getting to your veterinarian or your emergency veterinarian. And that's because we want to check to see if they have a fever and find out what the underlying cause of that fever is so we can make sure to treat it before they have an overwhelming infection. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. A huge thank you to Dr. Packninger for joining us today and talking to us about fever. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at drjustine at petliferadio.com. Find me at drjustinelee.com or on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee. With that, we're out of time and we want to thank Dr. Garrett Pachtinger and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. 